Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Woo. Welcome to our podcast. Really excited to have you on. What inspired you to get into music in the first place? You're a very well-known artist at this point and have been for many years and kind of want to know more about your story. Yes, as you probably know, in Bangla culture, there's a heavy emphasis on the arts. Bangladesh is a very like culturally diverse country that has a lot of emphasis on the arts. So I feel like in my upbringing, alongside with having to like study really hard in school, I feel like there's this sort of nurturing care put into having some sort of like artistic ability, be it painting or singing or playing an instrument. So for me, it was playing the violin. I grew up playing the violin since I was five years old. My mom, she played harmonium, she sang. I have an uncle who plays like guitar and stuff. So I feel like from the culture that you know, it was a part of my upbringing, essentially, you know, and I was in orchestras my whole life. I used to play violin, uh, solo repertoire stuff, and also like group orchestra stuff for a really long time. But when I got into high school, I found it to be quite unsatisfying only because I was performing music that was already written and that was like hundreds of years old. I have great respect for all the composers and classical musicians and all that stuff. I wasn't feeling like I was just getting anything out of it at, at a certain age. And that's when I started writing music. I felt that in school, you would take English classes where you would learn how to read and write. You would read books and then you would write, you know, analysis, papers, whatever, all that stuff. But in music, you only learn how to read and perform. We never learned how to write and I felt like that was like like an itch that needed to be scratched, like just something that was in me that I needed to like learn. And That's a really yeah. great analogy uh, to reading and how it doesn't really apply in music. But how did yeah. you develop or become interested in kind of the more electronic music? Was that also um, in school? Yeah, I mean, well, so it was funny because for me, in many South Asian households, there will be certain levels of kind of like strict regulations and rules. So I think in my household, what it was, was I grew up only on classical Western music and classical Indian or Bengali music. I was not allowed to listen to anything else. And I, obviously as a teenager, I was very rebellious and I was curious to know what else was out there. And, you know, my other Bengali friends would like listen to hip hop and stuff like that. So they were the ones who like got me into just like pop stuff, radio stuff, like different radio channels that I didn't even know existed. I was like mildly aware of pop music. I just wasn't listening to it recreationally. I didn't have CDs. I didn't have like a Walkman. Once I did get a Walkman, once I did get like her portable radio player, basically, I would listen to pop music on the mainstream radio station. And what I realized is that my whole life, I was always really interested in things that were almost like the opposite of organic classical music and that's electronic music electronic music is is the basis for a lot of like almost every genre like hip-hop music made on a computer still has elements of electronic music pop music made on a computer has elements of electronic music so anything with like synthesizers anything like that always caught my ear and so that's kind of how i was interested in the idea of electronic music but on top of that in high school i wanted to be in a band i just couldn't find any other bandmates and 
because of that, when I wrote music, I had to write all the parts myself. So when you're in a band, you have a drummer, bass player, guitar player, maybe a keys player, and of course a singer. So when I started writing music, I realized I had to write it all myself. I had to write all the parts. And that's how I got into producing, which, you know, you're on a computer, you open up a digital audio workstations called DAW, and you have like a multi-track project file. And so I would just do it myself. So for a very long time, I was very like independently, independent-mindedly writing music without like any help or anything like that. And through trial and error and through many, many years, I, I, we finally got to like where we are. You know, it didn't happen overnight or anything like that. It was, you know, the, the things that exist today, like tutorials and stuff on YouTube did not exist 10 years ago. So it took, took a lot of trial and error. Yeah, very good point. Um, to that end, did you have any mentors or existing kind of music figures, either as teachers or other people who were in the same space at that time who helped you? No, but what I will say is that the idea of like um, connecting with the community definitely helped a lot. Like I think for many years, I was very much like alone. Like even in college, I didn't really meet anyone else who was doing what I was doing, even though I know they existed. It was just more like me, me and my friends. And I was just kind of like, oh, it's Sajib. He's just making whatever like weird music he's making or whatever. But being alone doesn't really take you too far. And I think just through chance and through Twitter and social media, I met some friends and we were all in this Facebook group. And from there, I think that kind of opened a lot of doors and opportunities that eventually led to where I am now. But yeah, I never had like a mentor or like a teacher or anything like that. I would say just meeting like-minded people in the mid 2010s and really connecting with different people across the East Coast led to just more opportunities. Yeah. When was the kind of definitive moment where you thought to yourself, wow, I've made it or a sense of this is actually going somewhere and I, I might make it? Yeah. So, you know, there's definitely a bunch of different points, but I feel like the first turning point was Indian Summer as my first like original single that was released through Odessa's record label. The way I linked with Odessa was I did a remix for them on, on their album in return in 2014. And at that time they were based in Seattle and they still are based on Seattle, but I, I met up with them when I first played a show out there and Harrison from Odessa was like, Hey, you like, we're starting a record label. You should submit some music. And that's when I submitted Indian Summer, which got a release of summer of 2015, which is crazy because that's seven years ago. But that really started the ball, started to get the ball rolling, essentially, um, where I would start a tour, start to play headline shows. I played my first headline show in New York City that summer at, at Rough Trade in Brooklyn. And then since then, it's just kind of been a nonstop ride. You know, I wouldn't say it was overnight, but what it was, was like consistent, steady growth over the span of a few years. Wow. And you really kept that in, were committed throughout those years before you had Indian Summer come out. Um, which yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of like figuring out what I wanted to do musically and what I wanted to do, what the sound was. Like, you know, I started Jai Wolf in 2014 and it was still like heavily edm influenced at first just a little bit more heavier and then i was still trying to find out what i wanted to do with the sound which is funny because a lot of people have asked over the past few years like oh will you release more indian summer type stuff and interestingly enough haven't not that i'm against it but just like that's not the direction that i wanted to go and it's really funny. This is actually one of the reasons why I feel like we're sitting down and, and to chat because one thing I noticed 
for a lot of um, South Asian artists is that oftentimes, sometimes we can like pigeonhole ourselves into a certain sound or audience. Um, not that I was like anti or against that, but I didn't want to just make only South Asian influenced music. I have like a broad interest in a variety of different kinds of music. And I wanted to sort of tap into that and tap into things that I really enjoy and love. But it's interesting. I always think about how because I didn't lean further into Indian summer, it felt like some of the people we were talking to for press that were like more South Asian related almost stopped paying attention entirely. I think the easiest thing to say is like, oh, the music was a bit more like for a white audience. But I, I'm always curious to to see how a brown audience consumes media or consumes music. So one thing I noticed over the past few years is that we're sort of reaching this like East Asian renaissance happening in America where like you have Hollywood and music kind of like reaching new heights of just like seeing more representation with East Asians. You see the movie Crazy Rich Asians, you have Shang-Chi, which is awesome. I think those wins are still applicable to us at the end of the day because a win for them is still a win for all minorities, I believe. And we have 88 Rising with musicians like Joji, Rich Brian, and Nikki. They recently just had the second iteration of their festival, Head in the Clouds at the Rose Bowl in California, which is huge deal. And when I see stuff like that, what I think, what goes through my head is like, we need something like this. We need like the South Asian equivalent of a music festival or um, more South Asian people leading movies and stuff like that. I, I do think that we're making progress. We do see it a lot in Hollywood. But something I've been thinking a lot about is almost the lack of dot connecting at the end of the day for a lot of South Asian creators or or musicians or artists and stuff like that over the past few years. That's something that I wanted to change. I was like, we need to almost see a full shift happening over the next few years. Like, I think that the way South Asian consumers consume media needs to be like adjusted a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> it's an interesting time in which you began because I feel growing up, we didn't have that representation as much. Now we're starting to see it. And you're kind of part of the group of people who helped kind of shed more light on, on our group. Yeah. But it's funny because like the way I see it is like South Asians have a hard time getting on board with anything unless it reaches a certain threshold of success. And a lot of this is rooted in how success is defined when we are children, where it's almost like, oh, you know, so-and-so, they got into Harvard, they're going to medical school. It's like such a big deal. And it's like once you reach this certain level of, I don't know, some sort of prestige, then, then people pay attention, then people want to know what's going on. I think a recent example of this is when people found out that Doja Cat was Bart Dummel and kids on TikTok were like, oh, she's Bart Dummel, like we're, she's one of us, we claim her. But it's like these kids weren't around when she was struggling on SoundCloud seven years ago, or even with like Nav, who is, you know, a rapper from Toronto. He wasn't put on by South Asian people. He was put on and co-signed by The Weeknd and other hip hop artists. And then brown people decided like, oh, he's one of us. He's already so famous and he's brown. But they never did like the collective community work to uplift them. It's like after they get this mainstream co-sign, then they sort of you know, are then accepted. And that, that's something I want to see change, basically. I want to see sort of like this next generation have like a collective push from young South Asian consumers and not wait until they reach like a certain level of success before they like kind of claim them, you know? 
How do you envision that happening? I completely agree with you. And I feel like a, a big burden is that there aren't a lot of South Asians at the higher levels of record labels and, and producers who will take on yeah. someone yeah. and kind of help mentor people from similar backgrounds. And so if it's yeah. lacking at the top level, how can we at the grassroots level really uplift creatives? So you make a really good point because I see it, I break it down in three different groups of what is lacking. Um, and I've had this conversation with a lot of people. I, I love talking to people about this, but the way I see it, it, it comes from th- three different places. For sure, For the, from the record label executive side, behind the scenes, of course, they're more willing to sign white leading artists or white-centric artists, people who are more you know, digestible for a wide audience, for sure. That, that definitely is sort of this ingrained system that, that's been created. The next thing is consumer habits. I think historically, if you look at like concert buyers, ticket buyers, merch buyers, stuff like that, if you go to a concert, I think just culturally, when you're a South Asian person, there is that kind of strict upbringing in your household where it's like, don't, don't do this, don't do that. And part of that kind of is, I think, going to concerts is part of that lifestyle. I think it's not something that's sort of like, how do I explain this? It's not widespread or common amongst the South Asian community. If you go to a concert, for sure, you'll see South Asian people there. It's not like they're not there, but not as common. I think a very specific example I can give is like, if you go to an electronic concert, at an electronic concert, you'll see actually a lot of East Asian people. You'll see Korean people, Japanese people, Chinese people, Singaporean people, all those people. To the point where it's almost like this very specific subculture that has its own memes and interests and stuff like that. But you won't see the equivalent of South Asian people at an electronic concert or anything like that. So, you know, the consumer habit, I think, stems a little bit from how you're raised in a household and what rules you have to follow. And, you know, Brown people, we pick and choose at the end. They obviously like, there's like curfew rule breakers, of course, or people who like will drink or smoke or do drugs, whatever. It will vary household to household. Now, the third thing is doc, the lack of doc connecting. I think that that's something that also stems from how we're brought up, which is highly individualistic. It's probably one of the more conservative traits that a lot of South Asian people have where there can only be one. You have to be the best. Your mom and dad were the number one in their class. The only reason why they came to America is because they were number one. When they hammer that in and when they're like, you have to, you know, be at the top, you have to be working so hard that you can get into an Ivy League school. That's the type of thing that prevents community building and coming together and helping everyone kind of achieve what they need to achieve. So when, when you lack in these three areas where it's like, all right, you have like a systemically white system that kind of controls a lot of the music industry, consumer habits that aren't that haven't reached where they potentially can reach. And then also like high, high level of individualism. That's kind of why South Asian artists are where they're at right now as a whole, as a collective compared to East Asian artists who I think are like a few steps ahead. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And to your last point about kind of the individual upbringings, there almost seems to be like a perfectionist tendency among us from being hammered in with those, like, you have to be the best, otherwise it doesn't matter type of principle. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things I realized that, you know, wasn't really sad as a strong word, but like, I, you know, when I go on tour, I try to bring as many like Asian, East Asian, South, South Asian people as possible, ranging from my friends or upcoming talent and stuff like that. And one thing I realized when I got off tour in 2019 was like, there's not a lot of us. There really isn't. 
out there. And I wanted to see more people doing what I'm doing, more people who have the ability to go even higher. Like at the end of the day, I'm someone who just like presses a lot of buttons. I'm not singing or anything like that. And I think the potential for someone who sings or has a mic while performing, if you're a rapper, if you're a singer, if you're in a band, your potential is much higher in terms of where you can go as an artist. You know, and I wanted to see a landscape of people represents the wide variety of what we can do. I want to see a brown Justin Bieber. I want to see a brown, um, I don't know, Lil Wayne or a brown Childish Gambino or brown Phoebe Bridgers. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to see that across a spectrum. There shouldn't only be like one person on tour or whatever, or one person in every category. There should be actually a lot of people. Yeah, that's something that in 2019 I had I had done a tour. I was we had like I'd released my first album, went on tour, came home, and kind of like hit pause. And I was just thinking a lot about this at that time. I think it's slowly changing though. I, I on TikTok I pay attention to a lot of these young kids who are like making music and who are of South Asian descent and trying to see what they're trying to do and how like where can they go next and and what walls can be sort of bro- broken down for them so that they can get to heights that haven't been achievable before you know and i think our generation is actually doing the work of priming and paving the way for the next generation who will hopefully feel more comfortable to kind of have their own agency in these creative fields and break more barriers and not kind of have the kind of freedom creative freedom to to try um different things such as singing or making music etc yeah, what's cool is that I feel like TikTok has definitely made it more accessible for kids. I mean, when I was in university 10 years ago, I literally would stress out about like, is it even possible to have a career in music? Seems not worth it, you know, because the barriers were so different back then. And then as like SoundCloud became really popular, that was kind of like a lower barrier to entry of like, oh, you could just upload whatever you want on the internet and see what happens. Now with TikTok, there's this just whole different marketing vehicle that allows kids to, you know, post wherever they want and have the potential to be spotted by someone else. I mean, that's literally how I've found a lot of these kids where like, they just pop up on my feed. I'm like, oh, this person looks cool. I want to follow them. I want to see what they're doing. I want to see what they're capable of. And then, you know, as you mentioned, paving the way for the next generation, I see myself sort of transitioning into a mentor role one day. Like I I mentioned earlier that I didn't really have a mentor. There wasn't not even a brown person who could, you know, give me advice or anything like that. And I would love to be kind of like that person for the next generation. Because I feel like I've lived, I know I've only done one album cycle, but I've lived quite an extensive like touring cycle over the last like five years. I understand everything. I've been through all the hurdles and I definitely don't want anyone sort of like facing the the things that we had to face almost on our own from a trial and error basis, you know? Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. How did you come up with the name Jai Wolf? <laughs> the name. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to create a, an original name that was easy to find on the internet and one that had sort of reflected my identity as a South Asian person, but while also being digestible. I had to compromise a little bit. That's something I think about a lot. And I was talking to someone about this. I was talking about how like now it's so great to see kids just use their real names. You know, like you have Anik Khan, who's also a a Bangladeshi person from New York. He uses his real name. I think that's sick. I just didn't think Sajib or Shojib, that's how you say my name in Bengali, was like the most 
palatable or digestible name. At least seven years ago when I made the project, maybe now things have changed and maybe it, it could work now. But, you know, I picked Jay or Jai. I say Jai, but J- I realized later that Jay is the official way to say it if you're Indian. But I, okay. I just didn't want... You know, there's already like J. Cole, J. Sean, J. Z. So phonetically, I want it to be different. But if people say J. Wolf, that's like totally cool to me. I'm not like, I'm not picky or antsy about anything like that. Like J. Wolf, J. Wolf, either one works. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I picked, I picked that because um, it was easy to say. I didn't know anyone named Jai. Um, and I also originally wanted to be Dire Wolf, which was a, an animal from Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And my managers were like, no, like sounds like a metal band. So I picked Jai Wolf, phonetically very similar to Dire Wolf. And if you Googled it, there was like nothing. So perfect. Was, what does yeah, Jai mean for, for reference? Uh, Jai in Hindi means victory, but I don't think that translates into the name Victory Wolf. I don't, I don't think that <laughs> makes much sense. It's purely for mm-hmm. aesthetic purposes. Again, really easy to say. I think if you saw it on like a lineup, it stands out. And then just didn't want you. You have to get that um, the the SEO going. You know that was a big part of it too when I picked the name. Yeah, for sure. Do you think looking back at your music, do you see some influence from your Bangli upbringing that informed some of your thought processes? If not, the music itself. For some stuff, yeah. I mean, I guess with Indian Summer, it was like that. For the Ease of My Mind remix I did for Skrillex, it was like that. Um, I will say the thing that has the most effect on my music is my orchestral upbringing, playing the violin and being a someone who really enjoyed like film scores. That was a big part of or that is a big backbone to the music that I make now, where I really like sort of this grand, magnificent sounding type of music. You know, I think a lot of electronic music can sound big and grand like that. And so Throughout my music, if you listen to the background, you'll probably hear like some orchestra stuff happening or just like strings layered in. I would say that has a much bigger influence on music I make than the South Asian upbringing. That being said, I'm not opposed to it in the future to include stuff like that. It's not what I'm doing right now currently. But if there are artists who do it really well, there's Memba who are also in Brooklyn. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're absolutely incredible. Um, these two producers who make just like heavy bass music, but it's very influenced by South Asian culture. There's this kid, Kahani, who actually went to see a couple of weeks ago. Um, he had an event called Indo House. We connected through Instagram. He invited me and I, I came to check it out. So he, he does this thing where he like blends South Asian music with house music. And I thought that was really interesting. And just like at the event, there's a ton of South Asian people there. And it's something you don't really see too often. And I thought that was pretty exciting. But yeah, like I said, you know, there, there's a wide spectrum of what you can do musically. And I think that the problem that a lot of brown people either run into goes one of two ways. Either you're too brown for white people or too white for brown people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not really sure what the answer, how to fix that is, because on one hand, you don't want to you don't want to have too much of a homogenous audience, but you also don't want to alienate brown people if your music it doesn't sound brown. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of why I think we we are where we are because if you do lean into the South Asian stuff, you're immediately pigeonholed. You have a brown audience, but unfortunately, there, it's very hard to cross that over into a Western mm-hmm. in the Western world. But then when you look at like East Asian artists, they usually do not tap into. East Asian culture for their aesthetics or music. It's usually like, you know, if they're doing R&B or rap or even like K-pop, 
they're very heavily leaning on Western aesthetics. I believe that kind of lends for the crossover to be easily consumable and digestible. But South Asian music, it's yeah, it's it, there's something about the way it's presented. I, I'm not really sure how, how what the how the crossover can happen. Now I'm not saying to less to not rely on the South Asian influences or anything like that. But that is kind of the current like cultural conundrum that I see. I feel like it's difficult to to move out of, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's difficult. I I think it's really easy to kind of pigeonhole a yourself because it seems like an easy way to kind of use your identity and upbringing to like cater to a very specific audience. But at the same time, once you're in there, it's really hard to kind of break out of that. But it's interesting that when I when I think of of your discography, I think of Indian Summer as like the first one that did have kind of that influence, but you were able to kind of break away from that after that one large right. book. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's impossible. And I'm not saying that if I continued down that route, that things would, would be different or I'd have a different audience or anything like that. But one thing I did notice is that almost immediately after not making anything like that, a lot of like South Asian, like, interest almost like disappeared like we never had like proper like for example rolling stone india like we really tried to like connect with them and they were just like nothing ever happened with the album or anything like that so it's really interesting that like once you like this is how i see it i made this comparison the other day in in regards to the idea of representation it is easy to play the representation card because it's the hot thing right now i totally get it where you're like oh you're the first blah 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 to do xyz or you're the you know, when you see Simu Liu with Shang-Chi, like there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's great. It's definitely something worth celebrating. And it's a card that a lot of Western media really likes to use right now because it's almost like reversing all the pre-BLM kind of narrative. Like I feel like in a post-BLM world, it's all of Western media is like trying to play catch up and they're really trying to use these like buzzwords to kind of like reel people oh, in to be like, yeah. yeah, which I totally get. There's There's nothing wrong with leaning into that. There is a problem, however, if there's a complete lack of like mentioning the representation. I think that was something that was happening to us over the last few years, where after Indian Summer, let's say 2016 to 2019, right before the pandemic, we were not leaning into the brown identity at all. It was just like, cool, Jai Wolf, he's making synth wave, synth pop, whatever, electronic music. We were not capitalizing or mentioning the Bangladeshi stuff at all. Not intentionally. It just never came up and it was never questioned to the point where I met this girl recently, Sara Khan. She works in in media and, and she's really cool. We connected over Twitter and she was like, dude, I didn't even know Jai Wolf was, was brown. I thought I was a white person. And I do think that that getting to where we are now, especially the last few years without ever bringing up race, it's not a bad thing, but what I think is bad is that if if there's no mention of the historical implication of what's happening, that there has to be like a medium. You can't always play the card. You can't always play the like, hi, I'm Bangladeshi every single interview or every single time your name is brought up, which we didn't for a long time. It never came up. Mm-hmm. But also in the absence of that, I think that's bad too. And as a Bangladeshi person, I, I wonder if you agree we are actually even more underrepresented than Indian people or Pakistani people. Hundred like, percent. I, I think I was going to say, I think oh, yeah, Indians yeah. have an advantage of being here at least one more generation, at least in America. 
yeah. and having, I, I think that's why they're able to have a little more representation in TV shows and films recently. Yeah. Um, but still the, the Bangali and Pakistani population is very yeah. underrepresented. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. Like the way I see it is that, you know, you have a lot of East Asian people getting great representation right now. And then with with South Asian people, you have Indians, of course, and not only just Hindu Indians, but you also have Muslim Indians. You have Aziz Ansari, Hassan Minaj. They're both mm-hmm. Muslim, Muslim Indians. And a lot of Muslim people get that kind of like, it's almost like this post 9-11 redemption of like, yo, Muslim people are cool now. We have like our Muslim... Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, on on mm-hmm. in Hollywood and all that, which is great for sure. I totally get it. And then you have Pakistani people. There's you got Kumail. You got this new Marvel show coming out, Miss Marvel, the first South Asian su- female superhero. Phenomenal. You know, again, like I said earlier, it's a win for everybody. But again, one of the reasons why we were reaching out and tried to do more dot connecting is that when there is an almost absence of storytelling in terms of a Bangladeshi person, then I'm like, all right, now there's like almost a problem where it's like Bangladesh needs to get some love too at the end of the day, you know? But you know, there's, like I said, there's almost this like multi pronged approach where, where I want to make sure that what, what's happening to me is also happening to a lot of new kids out there. Like where I'm at right now, basically, I want to see 10 job roles. I want to see 20 job roles. I want to see other people touring the way we get to tour. I want to see more people on festival lineups. Like, the, the New York festival that got announced, Let's Get Free. Very exciting. Of course, we got Ravina, Priya Raghu, Anit Khan, Western Estate. Like so many more South Asians on that lineup compared to any other festival lineup. It's really, really cool to see. And I want to see more of that for sure. I also want to see Bangladeshi stories being told as well and not sort of being... I don't want to say forgotten, but just like pushed to the wayside, you know, like being Indian or being Pakistani is is strangely a bit, bit more palatable or presentable or whatever. You know, when, when people hear Bangladesh, maybe they don't even know what, what country that is. You know, we're, yeah. we're like we're on the far end of the radar in terms of things that are like understood or I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. Like, just, yeah. yeah, it's still surprising how many people go, where's Bangladesh? Where's that? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. That. Yeah. They like don't even know where it is on the map and and stuff like that. Which is fine. Like I get it. Like historically, of the things they teach you in school, it's just doesn't come up a lot. So of course people are not going to know too much about it. You know. I want to go back to a really great point you made about. It seems like you're suggesting that we we have to kind of be fluid and kind of come in where we're needed in terms of representation. So on the spectrum of like being fully owning that you're Bengali and always leaning with that and kind of being very distant from that you're somewhere in the middle and you see the opportunities of like okay there's a lack of Bangali storytelling in this very specific subset that I fit into so this is kind of my opportunity to shed more light on that and I think that push and pull is maybe something that we we ourselves can be a little more flexible with as well as individuals in the diaspora community yeah I mean it's it's funny I talked to my manager about this my manager Ben he's he's white one thing I told him like we've been talking about this for the last few years. He's been very mindful of what I have to say and what what I'd like to see change. When we did press for the last cycle, we actually just did not do any outreach on our own. It does go both ways. I do think that like we definitely could have done a better job. But at the same time, it was almost the last thing on my mind. Like I was writing the album, shooting music videos, doing photo shoots, building the tour, going on tour, all this stuff. The last thing I was thinking about was like, how is this presented? who's doing the press, who's, who are we reaching out to, like all that stuff. I wasn't really thinking about that stuff. 
And that was something that we were trying to correct for the next cycle, basically, where it's like, how can we like make sure the story is told properly? How can we hire a press person that's South Asian, maybe not hire a white person as our press person, you know, like stuff like that. We also wanted to know, like, how can we like reach out to Bangladesh? Like we I don't even know what it's like out there. I know that like sometimes I'll get YouTube comments like, oh, it's so cool that you're from Bangladesh, blah, blah, blah. Or when are you coming to play in Bangladesh? But we don't know press outlets out there. We don't know how we're being portrayed. But if if history is being made here and it's not being relayed over there, then you have this full absence of storytelling. Like I mentioned earlier, in Korea, those K-pop stars are coming to America, making history here. It's being showed back there. They're making history over there. It's coming over here. There's this very fluid thing happening Whereas here, we don't really have that, not, not only in just Bangladesh, but in India too, where you have a hard time. You don't see Indian artists coming out here and you don't really see South Asian American artists going out there as often mm-hmm. as they should be, you know? There's almost like a disconnect and wherever you make it is kind of where you, where you stay and continue to grow. You stay, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with, in my opinion, the way I see it is just conservatism at the end of the day. I do think that India and Bangladesh are highly like religiously run countries. And because of that, a lot of that culture becomes sort of like contained where a lot of things don't leave and a lot of things don't go in. I'm not saying that it's like a big wall or anything like that. Of course, they get movies and they get American music. They love Justin Bieber and I have cousins. They like K-pop. They're getting certain things filtered in. But it's very much still like just Bollywood at the end of the day, which is supremely popular in Asia for sure. I totally get that. But they're unwilling to see what else is happening in America or or they have that thing where they're like waiting for someone to reach a certain threshold of success before they like give the cosign of like, oh, yes, you're welcome here and we, we support you. Right. Um, if, if anything, it almost feels like they get the news in a delayed manner. So really, they would only get the large names and they would yeah. get it maybe like a couple of weeks after they've already risen to yeah. this. Even the reverse of, of people there coming here. I mean, look at Priyanka Chopra. Like, I, I think her her existence in America is really interesting because she, she like got Quantico, which is a TV show, which is great. She made a couple of like Hollywood appearances. She she had a song. She did songs with Pitbull and I think Will I Am. And she, she she attempted like a music career, but never really reached like full pop status the way she's sort of revered in India. And now you have this whole like Nick Jonas thing happening, which is like to me an interesting cultural marriage of like, all right, well that elevates her profile here, elevates their profile in India, the Jonas Brothers, and like. But that's kind of it. You know, we don't, we've never really had anyone else. We had like Irfan Khan come in and he was in Jurassic World and Spider-Man, the uh, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. Yeah, mm-hmm. like like stuff like that. No one else really. You know, there's still this, you don't have, the cultural flow isn't the same or as powerful as what's happening in Japan or Korea and other East Asian countries. Mm-hmm. But it also maybe begs the question of, is also some of it our lack of awareness of what's happening there. I mean, beyond the South Asian circle, I'm talking more in general about the West. I think like recently, like East, East Asian culture and, and media consumption is, is more common, but still not so much in South Asia. And so as much as South Asians are less willing or less likely to like uplift other creatives in the, the same circle, I, I think it's also the other way of like, the West also isn't that aware of what's going on in our circles. I agree. But I, I also do think that that has to do with almost the image. I mean, even look at like, look at the way like K-pop groups, what their aesthetic is. They they very heavily rely on Western aesthetics. They're wearing 
like high fashion brands and dressing like American people. They're not they're not in traditional like East East Asian garb. Whereas if you look at like Bollywood aesthetics, if you look at like the aesthetics of pop culture coming out of India, it's very much rooted in this traditional conservative nature. Which there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm but I do think that that image is what prevents a lot of like cultural flow to happen. And I do think that it is because of just the religion maybe at the end of the day of like that is kind of the core element of that country in comparison to korea and japan that and just like the general look at the movies like weren't they not allowed to like kiss in like bollywood movies for a really long time i mean that's part of it too that's like you know that that says a lot about cultural flow right there you know mm-hmm. right especially for that region of the world where religion and culture are very closely intertwined very intertwined yeah you can't separate them because i do think that korea and china and japan there is like christianity and and you know a lot a lot of my east asian friends come from households that have of you know their parents go to church and stuff like that 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 for sure is a thing but there is a separation it's not like the 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 center of their livelihoods or anything like that you know mm-hmm. or it doesn't affect more of let's say the more visible elements of let's say fashion or activities of um going out and listening to music exactly 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 even just i I know this is a silly example but even the idea of like what you wear when you go out especially if you're a woman compared to what it might be in another country that and the whole like like i toured india once i toured and i opened for kashmir kshmr he's like a indian producer and dj yeah he like used to be in the cataracts he produced like a g6 with far east movement and had a very fresh pop production career he worked with selena gomez and a lot of big pop artists and then he started his like edm project Kashmir. his name is niles really great guy super nice he brought me on tour his team was like oh we wanted to bring another house act but then we sat there and thought like why don't we just bring like someone who is not doing the exact same music as as niles and then also is also South Asian. So it's kind of a no brainer. It's really interesting. Like the crowd, 90% guys, like I totally get it. I get why, like, you know, if you're a woman or woman identifying person in India, like your parents might not, might be like, don't go to the rave. Like, don't, don't go to this thing that's happening. (laughs) But yeah, you know, that's something that is very hard to control. Like I am one person. I can't go over to India and be like, you guys need to change something. You know, this is kind of like, I don't know. It's it's a collective effort of a lot of people at the end of the day. Like, you know, this K-pop stuff and this 88 Rising stuff didn't happen overnight. This happened because of a lot of people coming together and really putting their minds to it to create this cultural tour de force. Like, mm-hmm. to anyone listening, I really have great respect for it. I use them as a comparison because I want that to happen to us. I want to see us thrive as well as they do because what they're doing right now is just, just never seen before you know and i think that you know we're in the 2020s right now i want to see by 2030 that we have a similar tour de force for south asian people at the end of the day you know by then i'll I'll be like really old i'm 30 right now <laughs> and i know that jai wolf has sort of an inevitable inevitable end date i'd love to just help the next generation as much as i can and be be on their team and also just be a resource too i'd love to like help any way I can and kind of devote myself to that. Cause at the end of the day, that win is for everybody. You know, it's like, it's in the hands of that next generation, you know? Yeah. We're in such a pivotal moment in, in our history 
um, being first gens and kind of actually creating that space um, that we'll hopefully get to see in our lifetimes come even larger. Um, yeah. And it's changing. I mean, look at like, I always think about how like, you know, we had Jay Sean, which was such a cultural moment. Um, and that I, I wish it could have been like a Jason Derulo, you know, like he really could have been that guy. The songs were so good. Like everyone liked them and they still hold up today. You hear down and you hear yeah. like that, the ride it remix that like, I think there's a DJ that remixed Ride It. And so there's the second life to that through a sample. And, you know, there will be another moment like that. I'm sure there'll be another kid who like can make Jay Sean type music and like reach new heights. And that's that's the way I see it, where it's like in every generation, someone will only take that torch even further and higher and all that stuff, you know. And that's kind of what I'd like to see at the end of the day. I wanna see I wanna see them just go higher and brighter and shine brighter. Yeah. To kind of start wrapping up, I wanted to get a sense of what are some of the next steps that you envision for for Jai Wolf? Yeah, so this year is a pretty big writing year. I do think that, you know, we kind of alternate between touring and writing. And and so right now we're in kind of a big writing phase. I would say that we're between projects right now. We do have a couple of shows here and there this year. Our main thing is playing Red Rocks this year, which will serve as like our... A part of the finale to celebrate the end of this era of this first record, which I'm super, super excited for. And, you know, with, with COVID and the pandemic and everything, it, it's really just taking it day by day because so much is so much of life is unpredictable. I do think that before COVID, like we would have three year chunks planned out, you know, in like 2017, it was like, I know what I want to do in 2018, 19, 2020. When in 2019, I was like, I know what's going to happen in 2020, 21, 22. And then being completely just blindsided by all this, you know, there, you really cannot predict what's going to happen. Like I, I, there's definitely a best case scenario that I have in my head of how the next few years will go, but nothing is guaranteed. Like it really is just taking it day by day. So right now I would say the future of Jive Wolf is just writing as much music as I can and just being excited to, that I have the ability to write music and being thankful and also just seeing seeing what the kids are up to man i want to see i want to I'm, I'm always curious to to hear new music and 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 find new artists so if you're listening to this right now if you have songs you're working on please tweet at me or shoot me a message on instagram i'd love to hear what you're working on love to see what you're doing um even if you're not south asian like i'll just you know if you're confident in what you're making send it over i'd love to hear it um and yeah i'm just taking it day by day yeah, I love that you're open to working with some of the younger creatives and listening to their stuff and supporting them. I think that's that in, in and of itself is really inspiring. And Yeah, like I said, I didn't have that. I didn't have not even just a mentor in general, but just like there was no South Asian person who was like either of the previous generation or, or was doing music at a high level that was like trying to see what I was up to or anything like that. So yeah, I'd love to change. I'd love to change that. Actually, on that topic, I'm curious as to how your parent extended family supported you during this time um, were they on board from the very beginning and knew that this was promising it's a good question my mom always championed me being musical i think after college they really wanted to make sure that i would at least get a job or something like that but i went through like a kind of a difficult year my senior year where i didn't graduate and my parents were like you should move home there's no way that we can support you if you're like trying to do music like 
if you want to do music, you have to live with us. That's what they were trying to say. And they were like, give it a shot for a year. If you, if nothing is happening in a year, then you need to like really be serious about your career and your job or whatever. And, and to be very honest, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I had um, got a degree in like marketing, communications, media, kind of like a create your own major type thing at, at NYU. And I really had no intention of just like getting a real job like that. I, I did have like this backup idea of like, maybe I'll work at a record label or in the music industry. The thing that really just got to me was if I worked in the music industry and I was working with artists next to me, adjacent to me, and I saw these people pursue their dreams and I'm just sitting like at a desk, I, I would feel some type of way about myself. But I just got lucky. I think my stars just sort of aligned and and I just took all, all the opportunities I could from 2014, 15, 16. Um, and for time reference, I graduated in 2013, or I was supposed to graduate in 2013, I ended up graduating in 2014. And so that was happening concurrently between graduation and, and sort of the music ball rolling. Once my parents came to a show, when I, I told myself I would bring my parents once I sell out my first headline show in New York City. So that was Rough Trade in Brooklyn, um, 2015 summer. They came to the show and now they come to every single show. Like anytime I play in New York, they, they come out. They came out to LA once, which was really exciting. We played a really big venue in 2019 and they came to Australia at the end of 2019 because we have some family out there. So when we, when we did our Australia tour, we we're like, we're going to make this family affair. They came out to Sydney and Melbourne and that was a lot of fun seeing my cousins and my, my mom and dad. It was very surreal to be in like, especially as someone who never traveled growing up. My, my biggest gripe uh, being lower middle class middle class was like wow, we, we're never going on vacation my, my friends are going to cancun on spring break and I, you know or going to like disneyland or paris or i don't know and i'm like oh it was always jealous you know so getting to be in another country with my parents in my late 20s playing a show with my cousins was one of the most surreal experiences in my life but glad that they have my back and glad that they were always like supportive supportive of me um just championing music you know that's really heartwarming to, yeah. to hear and i'm glad that you had that support system yeah yeah very, um, very lucky going to pivot and close out with a couple of fun questions that we do on the bony podcast um yeah. more about just fun things about being bengali mm -hmm. uh number one what is your favorite bengali food my favorite bengali food is my mom's cooking it is number one <laughs> as everyone probably said well, that if she's cooking. listening to this yes that is the correct <laughs> answer <laughs> yeah. well it's the best best ever i mean just her the chicken the fish the, the you mm -hmm. know the shub g like it's all great um and my grandma too you know probably tied for first because it's like you go mm -hmm. to bangladesh your grandma cooks you food and it's like just cooked in a way that is so indescribable just it's incredible yeah. <laughs> so just that i can give you a specific dish it's just like everything my mom's make. my mom makes is, is gold so okay when was yeah. the last time that you visited bangladesh um last time i visited was 2017 it was right before my grandfather passed i did a solo trip but i needed to see him because he was getting sick um my parents are actually there right now i unfortunately couldn't make the trip but they're they're there now um it's been a while I, i've only been back four times 98 2006 2014 2017 mm -hmm. so I, I think i'm due for another trip very soon yeah and what part of bangladesh do you usually visit when you go uh, wh what part is your family from 
Um, most of my family lives in Dhaka right now. Uh, mm-hmm. I have my um, some family in Naranganj, and my mom's side is from Rajshahi, but I don't know if we have any family there now. But I think most of them are in Dhaka right now. Yeah, it seems like everyone's going to talk about these days. Yeah. And uh, lastly, did you have a Daknam growing up or a nickname, if you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, uh, so it's a funny question because all my cousins have doc noms and i i never really had an official one um but my parents call me babu this just means child if if you're not bengali um but the, the funny thing about the doc nom that n- i never understood was like why why would you give them a doc nom why would you give them a real name but then call them by their doc nom? i never understood that i have a cat now and i do not call my cat by its real name <laughs> I, give cat, I give my cat a doc nom essentially so you know? here you are doing the same thing that you're once yeah. Yeah. yeah and i'm like oh it, it makes sense now <laughs> like it like it like clicked in my head um, <laughs> but yeah i actually yeah i actually weirdly don't have i don't have a middle name and i don't have a doc nom those are two things growing up i was like i wish i had <laughs> likewise i feel like i missed out on that ba- part of being Bangali. yeah it's funny like you know you Growing up in America is so interesting because you grapple with this whole identity thing where you have your South Asian identity, of course, and you have your this American identity growing up. So when you when you feel like there's something lacking and you're trying to form formulate what your identity is, to me, like I'm like, oh, I don't have a middle name. Like I'm, I'm like, why is it that my cousins have middle names and these American people have middle names? I don't have a middle name. And then you feel like you're you start questioning your identity and all these weird ways that is definitely unhealthy for young kids and young immigrant kids but yeah it's it's funny how how a name can mean so much you yeah know? And, and, or even just feeling self-conscious about your real name and all that so that's stuff that every kid i went through that that was my biggest thing um growing up being very self-conscious about my real name and how it's pronounced and all that stuff mm-hmm. you know but in a way i i mean this is how i rationalized it for myself of it 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 almost feels nice to have one name that I use both outside of home and at home because it, mm-hmm. I, I think about some of my cousins or friends who do have doctors and it's like, mm-hmm. once they go home, they're not only addressed by a different name, but they're also in a whole different world. And like, it feels so split down to what you're referred to and what you're called. And I, yeah, I imagine yeah. trying to mediate and grapple between, between those two worlds all the time. Yeah, that's probably... Yeah, you know, it's like the whole thing of like, oh, how I am with my parents is different from how I am with my friends. Yeah, I, I think for me, the split comes to Shojib and Sajib because Shojib is like, you know, my mom, dad call me Shojib, and my friends call me Sajib. <laughs> you know, so yeah. in a way, that's that's the closest thing probably to Daknam. You know, right. Well, thank you so much for telling us a little bit about your life, your music and hopes and aspirations. Um, it's been really awesome having you on the podcast and um, it's been really, we cheer you on uh, for your future tours um, and hopefully we get a little more representation um, in your audiences and um, your your sound base. So, yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and, and thanks for having me. Gotta be honest with diamonds and pearls, yeah, yeah. Bengalis in New York, all over the world. Uh, it's the bony show. Uh. 
Hey, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live. From the slang we spit to the gangs we wish. It doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh. I say, hey, come on. Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live. From the slang we spit.